1: Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be looking at researching spirit mediums. My guest is Mark Bocuzzi, who is the co-founder, with his wife Julie Beischel, of the Windbridge Research Center. Some of you may know that I interviewed Julie a couple of years ago about her work investigating mediums, and I'm going to link to that video now. If you haven't watched it, I think you'll enjoy it. Today, we'll uh, explore with Mark further developments in their program of researching spiritualist and spirit mediums. Mark is based in Tucson, Arizona, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Mark. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Hi, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. You and your wife, Julie, have been researching mediums now, spiritualist mediums, spiritual mediums, spirit mediums, or so many different terms, uh, but for well over a decade, I suppose close to two decades at, at this point. Uh, let's begin by talking about what motivated you to engage in this line of research. I don't always like to paraphrase Julie's, you know, origin
0: story. She talks a lot about it in detail in her book, Among Mediums, but, uh, to just sort of the highlights. When she was in, uh, graduate school, she, um, her mom committed suicide. And sometime after that, she was, um, watching TV and she saw a medium on television. And she said, Oh, those people look like this is a real experience for them. And they seem very moved. So through a series of events, she, Uh, had a reading with a, a medium and she found it to be really evidential and she was still in grad school at the time. And she went back to the other people, the other scientists that she works with, and she went, uh, I had this experience. And like most good scientists, a lot of them said, oh, I don't know anything about that or much about that. That sounds really interesting. But a number of them said, no, you were duped, and this they're frauds. And, and she was like, no, I was there. I understand the process. And that really put her on the path to try to figure out uh, learn more about what science had to say about these topics, what the science, what science may have to say about the existence of an afterlife. So that's Julie's backstory in a nutshell. Um, for me, I've always been very interested in these topics ever since I was a kid. Uh UFOs, ghosts, hauntings, cryptids, uh, any, any psychic abilities. I love this stuff. I couldn't get enough of it. Um, and it, pro- it was uh, well after I'd graduated from college and I was in my working career. It's probably around 2000 or so. I met up with some friends and we decided to start investigating uh, reports of local haunted locations. And uh, I went on a couple of these ghost investigations and I was hooked. I thought this was great. And uh, jump ahead to 2005. And both Julie and I find ourselves at the Parapsychology Summer Study Program, which was a program put on by the Rhine Research Center and the Institute of Noetic Sciences that year. And so we're both in Northern California and we were attending this event. And we were one of the few people there that had an interest in survival. So we became fast friends and we started talking about collaborations. And then fast forward to 2008, and now I'm in uh Arizona. I was living in San Francisco. And uh uh and we launched the Winbridge Institute, which then became a a platform for Julie to independently continue her research on mediums and for me to study to help her and also study other uh psi or psychic related phenomena that I'm interested in.
1: I think it's fair to say uh, and to clarify for our viewers that ever since really the 1930s when J.B. Ryan launched the parapsychology laboratory at Duke University, uh, parapsychologists have been less interested in the question of survival of the human personality after the death of the body uh, because practically all the data that one could in theory accumulate in that regard, could be explained as as what Ryan and others now call ESP, extrasensory perception. That is the classic um, sort of brick wall that people that study
0: afterlife communication and mediumship specifically uh, run into. And it's often referred to as uh, the super psi hypothesis or living agent psi. And so when I use the term psi, what I mean, it's the it, psi is an umbrella term for phenomena like telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and psychokinesis. Uh, uh, and so uh, our research has been focused on primarily three different areas. And so the first has been can, is accuracy, or we call the information uh, research arm can mediums actually report accurate and specific information about the deceased and then the next arm is what we call the operations arm which is how might mediumship work what is media what what's going on with the mediums during a mediumship reading what's going on with sitters uh and that kind of those kinds of questions and then the third is what we call application and what can we do with mediumship how can we apply mediumship to uh uh, address real world problems so to come back to your point which is kind of our operations arm um it's true there's there's always been this roadblock and at some point though um you have to realize that the living agent psi hypothesis and the um the the the, the super psi hypothesis they're not falsifiable right there's there's no way you can set up an experiment that that um could show that those that that phenomenon is actually happening. What we do know is happening is we have the experiences of sitters, we have the experiences of mediums that uh, indicate that this is a this is an actual phenomena. So to dig into that a little bit more, what we were able to do in our research with modern American secular mediums uh, was to ask them about their experience during mediumship readings. Now previously traditional, Mediums, uh, back in Victorian era and earlier, uh, would go into full trance. So they couldn't really tell you much about their experience. That's not the case for most American modern secular mediums. And uh, although there are still full trance mediums out there, they're not the group, uh, that we, that we, uh, study specifically. And so when you ask them about their experience, they can tell the difference between information they're receiving psychically from a living agent or a living and, and communication from the deceased. And we've explored that through a number of ways, looking at the medium's phenomenology and experience using a number of different protocols compared to like mediumship reading versus control conditions and things like that. So at this point, we're leaning towards the, uh, the, the survival hypothesis versus the living agent psi or super psi hypothesis until such time as someone is able to bring forth new data that um, uh, supports
1: those two alternate hypotheses. Now, you use the term, if if I heard you correctly, secular medium. Uh, What does that mean, secular, in this context? There are many branches
0: and uh, uh forms and practices of mediumship and so some of those are done through a religious context and so the mediums that we generally work with don't uh, prescribe to any particular dogma or church or organization so they're, they're they have their own philosophy they have their own spirituality they have their own ideas about it but they don't there isn't an, an overarching um uh
1: Uh, philosophy, or approach to mediumship. Now, I also assume that the types of mediums that you investigate are what have been known as, historically, as mental mediums. That uh, Because I, I would think if you have a full-blown spirit materialization, that would be pretty good evidence. Uh, if it could be uh, documented consistently and if it had some sort of stability over time, that would be very good evidence for separating out Living Agent Psi from the survival hypothesis but it's pretty rare that's an interesting proposition so um,
0: yes the answer to your question is yes we studied what are traditionally known as mental mediums versus trans full trans mediums oh. or physical mediums which are mediums that uh, can produce the kind of phenomena that you just mentioned but it's an interesting question because of these Physical phenomena like psychokinesis and other things that we know that living consciousness consciousnesses can create um, is physical mediumship really more um, evidential of survival than just mental mediumship. So, for example, when we talk about the accuracy of mediums, we have a very specific protocol that we use. It's called uh, a test for anomalous information reception, or A.I.R., and it's uh, uh it's a it's a very uh detailed and controlled process but the takeaway from that research is yes some mediums may in fact be able to re- uh, some mediums seem to be able to report under controlled conditions uh accurate and specific information about the deceased but just because they've given us that accurate information that doesn't give us information about the source right? So, that's where this phenomenology piece comes in. We have to look at it from a different perspective. I think the same sort of questions apply to physical mediumship as well. So, to automatically jump to a physical manifestation of a phenomena in a seance room with a medium equals evidence for survival, I think we need to be careful about that and dissect it a
1: little bit more. I understand that uh, because I've studied psychokinesis and I realize uh, that we don't know the outer limits of human psychokinetic ability on the one hand on the other hand i'm not aware of any example of psychokinesis that results in a fully formed uh, apparition that can be touched and photographed and will interact with people uh, in real time uh, expressing the personality of a deceased individual first off even
0: in the historical literature those kinds of phenomena that you're des- that you're describing seem pretty rare yeah how often do they really happen and would they happen under modern conditions like i've i've done my best so i've studied some small aspects of physical mediumship and my interest is so when we let me back up a second so when we study the phenomena any of this kind of phenomena We have two main interests. One, we want to optimize the conditions under which the phenomena can occur. So we want to study the phenomena as it exists, not as how we think it should exist, which I think is a downfall for a lot of researchers that get into this field. Uh, But simultaneously, we also want to maximize our experimental controls, right? So we want to make sure there isn't that we're actually studying the thing we think we're studying, that we're trying to study. Uh, there is an information leakage. We mitigate things like fraud and bias and things like that. So once, when, st- when I was working, uh, with physical mediums and I just did a little bit of this, my interest was around the, this fact that many physical mediums require near or total darkness to perform, to produce phenomena. And when I was talking to other researchers about this, um, they were like, well, just sneak a camera in, or just you know, use an infrared camera, and just like, don't tell them. And like, my goal in life is not to fool people and trick trick mediums into performing you know miracles or whatever. Like, like I want to work with those those people in a way that's respectful and and um, allows them to do their craft in a way that we can properly document. So my thing was to apply thermal imaging. To, uh, to to document this phenomena, and it worked really well. And the cool thing about thermal imaging, unlike active infrared or other kinds of uh, you know, low light cameras or whatever, uh, is that you don't have to introduce any other energy into the room. Thermal cameras just pick up whatever's, whatever energy is being generated in the room, and we were able to capture some really nice images, and we showed that thermal imaging would be a cool way or a potentially really beneficial way to study physical mediums. There's also been other work along these lines with like very low light, like star, they're called starlight cameras that work with very, very low uh, intensity light. And they've had some interesting results there. So, so my point is that physical mediumship can be explored in ways that I think a lot of people aren't taking advantage of. And, um, and I think it would be really interesting and important to try to answer some of those questions that you bring up, about the nature of that phenomena, being able to document that phenomena,
1: and the relationship between uh, that phenomena and survival. So, it would seem from what you're telling me that with both physical mediums and mental mediums, they are able at the phenomenological level to distinguish between their own psychic functioning and some sort of uh, communication they have with the spirits of the deceased. I'm definitely saying that about mental mediums. Uh, uh, we have never studied physical
0: mediums, the phenomenology of physical mediumship. So, I, and I don't know anyone who has, it would be fascinating to do that. Uh, my experience is that physical mediumship, at least here in the U.S., isn't as prominent as mental mediums. And when most people, again, so um, I'm going to sort of back up to get to where we're going, is uh, so you know, in 2017, Julie and I split the Winbridge Institute out to, uh, into a new organization called the Winbridge Research Center. And the mission of that, of the center is to specifically study and alleviate suffering around dying, death, and what comes next. So, um, how to, and a lot of that and all that work focuses primarily around um, mediums and mediumship research and mediumship communication. And so when people in the US today are seeking out a medium, chances are they're going to run into or hire or book time with uh, a mental medium who probably isn't going to produce any uh, physical effects. So while physical mediumship is really, really interesting at this point, given you know we've only been around for three years and research funding in this field is very difficult to acquire, uh, our focus has been to uh, has been on medium on the mediumship experience that most people here in the U.S. are going to encounter, and ultimately we're interested in determining whether or not uh, a mediumship reading is beneficial. To help alleviate or mitigate the symptoms of uh, traumatic grief in people.
1: I've also had the pleasure of interviewing a fellow you know named uh, Robert Ginsburg, the Co founder of the Forever Family Foundation. And his organization is uh, dedicated uh, along the same lines to help alleviate the suffering of grieving uh, people who have lost a loved one. And they had a program, uh, and I know you've had a similar program for certifying mediums. He told me, for example, that only about 15% of the mediums who applied to his organization to be certified were able to meet the uh, standard that they had established, which, as I recall, included having to give five different readings to five separate individuals.
0: So, yeah, Forever Family Foundation is a wonderful organization. And if you're interested in these topics and you don't know about them, you should track them down and look at their research. And they're not a research organization, but they, they, they offer a lot For people in that are grieving, we are primarily a research organization, and then we take our research and we turn it into free open access educational materials for everyone to use. Now, about the the mediumship testing at the Wimbridge Research, well, this all this work sort of happened at the Institute and then rolled over to the center in the last several years. But, um, so we received a grant to create us a team of what we call winbridge certified research mediums and it's a very detailed process and they have to have training in various areas they have to maintain a um a code of spiritual ethics that we ask them to do we um uh, they have to complete readings under blinded laboratory conditions and so on so our protocol has been peer reviewed and it's published it's available uh, on our website, you can go and look through our peer-reviewed papers. You can download the paper there. So you can see all the steps that we put the WACERMs, the Winbridge Certified Research Mediums, through and, um, and why we do it that way. Um, and so when the funding for that project ended, we no longer certified mediums. So we don't do that anymore because we have a pretty good team at this point. Um, we may consider reopening it if, as more of our team members decide to retire, you know, because we've been doing this for a long time now, but we'll see That's uh, that, that would be down the road. And, um, so, but there's interesting things about certification of mediums that, um, are sort of that, that are, that, that, that bring up some interesting questions. So for example, with us, when we did our, our screening, right, we would get a medium would apply And then we would tell them about all the steps they had to go through and the fact they would have to donate time back to the center for, for, uh, research and the vast majority of mediums that originally applied for this, for the program self-selected out because for whatever reason, we don't, I can speculate as to why, but, um, uh, you know, it seemed as if, you know, the commitment was too much. We were asking them to do things in the lab that were really, um, out of their comfort zone from the way they would normally run a reading. And this isn't assuming that those people are fraudulent, but, you know, if you're used to giving readings in person and we're making you do readings over the phone, you may not be comfortable with that, and that's not going to be a good mix or a good match. So um, uh, we we would go through this process with our mediums, and then, uh, but even then, what we found was that uh, from the perspective of the medium and this perspective of – we we try to focus on the experience of the people that we're working with. So the experience is you have a deceased person that we call discarnate, and there's a medium, and the deceased uh, person – the medium is making contact with the deceased person and then conveying messages to a person called a sitter – who wants to make a con, who wants to make a connection with that deceased person? So that's a very complex dynamic that all has to be working together in order for that communication to work. You know, Julie used to joke, um, you know, we study human communication. One of the people just happens to be dead. Right. And also all the rules of hu- good human communication and human interaction kind of apply to the mediumship process and, um, And so, if there's a sitter that isn't following directions or there isn't a connection that the medium can make with this particular discarnate, that doesn't mean that that medium is a bad medium. It just means that combination of things on that particular day didn't work out. And since we had a bunch of mediums that we had to go through, we couldn't just continually test every single medium with a new sitter group, right? We were like, yeah, a chance, and then we're moving on. And so, but that doesn't mean that that medium is bad, right? It just means that it didn't work for our test on that day. And so I'm really hesitant about this, like, certification of mediumship thing, because it may be blocking good mediums out of a process. Uh, the other thing, too, is that it's not possible... I don't care how many organizations are out there, it's simply not possible to certify every single medium that wants to be certified or would would do well on the test. So again, you're setting up this weird dynamic in the world where, like, oh, you were lucky and you could afford it and you could uh you you got a good sitter group and a good discarnate group on a particular day. So therefore you got the certification. And that feels really unfair to me um as someone who wants to democratize mediumship that wants to uh uh, have mediumship available to as many people as possible um that process just feels really unbalanced and again i'm not saying anything i'm not trying to be derogatory towards forever family foundation they have a they seem to have a good system and it's working for them but uh we're doing something a little bit different. And then the other thing too about our certification process, it's really focused on making sure that the mediums we work with are able to follow directions and complete protocol and want to be involved in research and are, you know, mindful about what they do and what they say within a laboratory context. So, um our approach to the but it's also important that people in out in the wild right in the world can find good mediums or mediums that they can work with so our approach to that problem isn't certification in under controlled artificial conditions it's teaching sitters it's education it's creating what we've been calling the um a sitter's bill of rights so that they can understand what it means to be a good sitter, what to look for when you're trying to vet a medium, uh, how to go into a mediumship process fully aware of what the limitations and possibilities are within a mediumship process, and also taking that information and giving it to mediums so that they know like, oh, this is relevant information I should probably have on my website. And this should include everything from what services I'm providing to our my refund policy, right? So if you're hiring any professional, you would expect them, you would expect to know what you're buying up front. So this is our approach instead of like trying to uh, certify every single valid medium out there, which is impossible. We're going back to education and we're focusing on empowering sitters to be able to make the
1: right choices and decisions when vetting and finding a medium. But I get the impression from the tone of uh, our conversation that you're quite optimistic that if people sincerely seek a, a good medium that the the odds are they could have a good experience maybe more than 50% of the time. Well, I'd hate to put a percentage on it, but but yeah, I think, you know,
0: if if you go in again, that's it's a lot it's, so you know mediumship is one of these things that's that's really captivated the public for a long long time Sorry, i'll stop waving that around um and um and there's a lot of media around it and there's so um so there's a lot of expectation around what a medium does and how they do it and the accuracy and that mediums will always be 100% accurate and all that all those kinds of things because of the way they're portrayed in the media and That really gives a very skewed perspective of what people should expect when they engage with a medium. So I think it's incumbent upon us to try to change that and have, give people a more realistic view. And I think that will help people um, have a more positive experience regardless. They'll be, they'll know what they're getting into, they'll know what to expect, and they'll be able to have a better sense of, uh, what really is an evidential mediumship reading versus something that may not be as evidential. Um,
1: and I, I think that that's personally, I think for me it's an important it's an important way to go. I'm under the impression that one of uh, what I could call the holy grail of mediumship research would be to find a physiological marker that could distinguish between when the medium is giving you accurate information and when the information is uh, coming from some other place that's not accurate. Uh, and, and I guess that uh, because it's a holy grail, uh, we have yet to achieve it, even though it seems as if there's some tantalizing prospects.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly that's in our operations arm, that's really some pieces we've been looking at, sort of the neural and physiological correlates to accurate mediumship information. And um, so we've run some preliminary studies. And again, this is an area we'd like to pursue but again, funding is always limited, and you know the traditional funding routes that other areas of research have access to, like National Science Foundation or National Institutes of Health in, here in the U.S., uh, just don't exist for this kind of research. So we rely a lot on small foundation grants and individual donations. But um, so far, we've looked at two two areas. The first is you know we called it we a pub we had a study we was published not too long ago. we call it the heme Phys study. It's the hematological and physiological study where we asked mediums to, con- to uh, conduct a mediumship reading and a controlled and then a control reading. and they were all counterbalanced and randomized and all that good science stuff. And during the process, what we did is we drew their blood, we drew the blood of the mediums, and we looked at various um, uh, factors in their blood to see if there were differences between the control reading and the, the control condition and the reading, and there weren't any. We also looked at other physiological factors like temperature and heart rate and something called heart rate variability, uh, uh, blood pressure, uh, and other just basic uh, physiological measures. And again, we didn't see any real difference between the two phenomena. So, that was really interesting. And um, uh it, I don't want to say it dead ended us, but it, um, uh, it made us, it makes us think we need to look someplace else. And, um, but what we did find during that research is that when we were getting information about the, the medium's health was that a lot of mediums seem to be, uh, have a higher reported rate of various sorts of disease. So autoimmune disease and other, other factors. And we also found that there's this interesting link. Uh, between mediumship ability and accuracy and childhood trauma. So, we also know that there's a link between trauma and disease state in, in adults. So, there's this interesting triad, again, that appears between mediumship ability, childhood trauma, and health. And so, we've been sort of exploring that a little bit more as well. So, the other piece of this sort of physiological correlates would be neural correlates. And so, we did run a study uh, along with um, researchers at other labs um, to look at what was going on in a medium's brain using EEG and uh, during a mediumship reading and during a control reading or a control condition. And that Really raised some interesting questions again about the use of EEG and accuracy, and it was a relatively small study, and it's uh, it's available online. Um, you can read it, uh, read it in its entirety. So the results aren't all that impressive, but the um, the 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 takeaway for us was media uh, EEG may not be a particularly good tool for studying accuracy in mediums and mediumship. So when we talk about mediumship, we're talking about something very specific. It's uh it's this process between the medium, the discarnate, and the sitter, where the medium is receiving information and then giving that information to the sitter. That process is mediumship for us, and that that event is called a, a mediumship reading. And that's a very free flowing, organic, holistic experience. And what we found with the EEG that made it difficult was that, um, uh, we, when we do a mediumship reading in the lab, we ask the medium specific questions. So we would ask the medium a question and then the medium would have to download or get the information. And when she would normally just speak it, she had to stop for a period of time so we could collect what we call clean EEG data and then she could start talking because the process of talking creates electrical artifacts in the muscles in your face that would upset or disrupt or block or, or um the eeg signals so they would override any good data we could get so in talking to the mediums afterwards we found that that breaking that flow of consciousness was really difficult for them and presented some problems. So when it comes to accuracy, we're very cautious about using EEG as a tool, but EEG could be used to look at other aspects of mediumship. So one of the other protocols we had in this particular study was we not only asked them to do a mediumship reading, but we also tested what we looked at was uh, perception, fabrication, and recollection. And what we found was that uh, mediumship looked different in their brains than those other states. And so that's interesting because it begins to hint at this idea that, uh, you know, when people say, oh, she's just reading something off the internet that uh, from about the sitter, so it's fraud. Well, no, because that would be perception and that's not. That's not what that looks like. And, or, oh, you know, she, she read something earlier and now she's remembering it or Well, no, that's recollection. Is that's not what mediumship looks like. And again, these results are really preliminary. And this is something I'd love to be able to replicate using different technologies. But that to me is a really interesting potential neural correlate that may, but, but the trick there is that this is probably going to look a lot like, psi in the brain right so there's there's been a fair amount of research on psi functioning and what the brain is doing during various uh precognitive tasks or telepathy tasks and things like that and since um communication with a with a discarnate through a medium is probably some sort of psi mechanism whether it's telepathy or whatever um there's probably going to be a lot of overlap between what psi-functioning looks like in the brain and what mediumship looks like in the brain. And so, while it's cool to think like, oh, we could use brain scan stuff and it's science-y, um, it may not actually get us to the fundamental underlying question, which is, is a mediumship reading different than psychic functioning as it expresses itself physiologically in the brain?
1: I'd like to go back to an earlier comment you made about the immune system of of mediums. I think it's very interesting that you you're suggesting that uh, people who are mediums have a higher level of immune system disorders and and dysfunctioning, uh, also a higher level of uh, reported uh, early childhood abuse, uh, uh, and those two things are correlated, it, it dawns on me. Now, I know also the same correlation exists with people who report a lot of spontaneous psychic experiences of all forms. Uh, but it strikes me that the immune system might function uh in a way that that we have something analogous like a psychic immune system so that most of us don't have uh discarnates interjecting into our consciousness or even other living people for the most part interjecting into our consciousness that there's something in, in our physiology that uh, protects us from that sort of thing that's
0: interesting um i'm wondering if it's physiological or if it's um uh or if it's more of a psychic or a psychological function um because you so the basically what you're talking about is a phenomenon called after death communication experiences or adcs and they're actually really prominent they're they're um i'm going to throw out a number i'm going to say 30% don't murder me if that number is wrong um but some surveys that i've seen put the com- um put about of the population in the U.S. have had some sort of after-death communication experience. And whether that's um, some sort of spontaneous experience where they have a sense of presence or they see some sort of apparition or they have a dream or some sort of thing like that. So uh, that sort of psychic immune system um, may exist, but it's, yeah, I don't know. It's Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Uh, It's again, it's something we've studied specifically, but um, I think these phenomena are pretty common and they're probably more common than we would think they are because, you know, I talk to a lot of people and like someone will say oh yeah you know i did a thing and i thought maybe it was a message from my dead mom but then i looked online and they said no messages from your dead mom are impossible because that doesn't fit the materialistic scientific paradigm that we all work under so i rejected it as just fanciful imagination or wishful thinking or whatever right so so is it cultural is it psychological is it physiological is it is it some non local Psych. I, I feel a little awkward using these terms like this, but is it some sort of non-local psychic protection bubble that are, that's created around it? I, I don't know.
1: It's an interesting question. Well, one of the areas that you have looked at uh, is the question of whether uh, people who are grieving are actually helped through the grieving process when they visit mediums. Again,
0: that comes back to our application arm, and it's sort of All this stuff from my perspective, all this other research that we do really is funneling towards that endpoint. And, um, so yeah, so the question is, uh, do people who, um, have a mediumship reading, uh, are, do they, do they experience some relief of grief that is more profound than, um, what time alone or other therapeutic, uh, modalities can provide? And the anecdotal evidence points to yes, and so we've done some research on this. We need to do a lot more, and I want to be really clear here: if you're suffering from traumatic grief, if you're if you're experiencing um, strong emotions around the loss of a loved one, I'm not saying you should immediately go out and get a mediumship reading. You, that's something that needs to be done very cautiously and very carefully. And, uh, we even recommend including, uh, a licensed mental health professional in the loop to help people integrate those experiences. But, um, so talk to your healthcare provider and, um, just be really cautious because the, the research here is still very nascent. We're still at the very beginning of this. So, but based on preliminary data, based on self reports, based on, um, other things we've looked at, this could be an interesting model. This combination of having a healthcare provider and a mediumship reading uh, together could really be um, a beneficial pathway for people who
1: are suffering from uh, traumatic grief. I know when I spoke to Robert Ginsburg about it from the Forever Family Foundation, he seem to feel that the important aspect of the reading is the evidence to, that you, you want some evidence that your loved one has really survived. And then secondarily, although it's very powerful, is the emotional connection that occurs, knowing that you can possibly complete incomplete communication, or also understanding that there's a bond of love between you and the uh, deceased person that still exists. That's
0: So, there's a, a number of things there that are really interesting. So, the first bit is when mediums provide a mediumship reading, it basically contains three sections. So, the first is um establishing the connection with the target discarnate by providing accurate information and a description mm-hmm. of the discarnate that the sitter can relate to so they know that they're in communication. The next bit is information about what's happening in the sitter's life that shows that the discarnate is still around, or has had some experience, or is like you know looking in, or you know taking some sort of active role. Active roles, wrong term, but is is um, is still somehow uh, involved with the with the with the with the sitter. And then the final is usually like messages, like I love you, I'm still around, I'm okay, you know, things like that. So um, uh, it's me, I'm here, and I love you, right? So that's the thing. So um, so with that in mind, uh, a model of grief has developed, and this has been developed outside of mediumship, uh, is what's called continuing bonds. And the idea is that the relationship between you and your deceased person still exists. It's just changed. And for some people, a mediumship reading can be the catalyst that helps them, uh, realize that that relationship, while different, is still around. And so this continuing bonds model is something that we've been looking at and, um, and, if people are interested, they should uh, dig into that a little bit more. But, um, but yeah. So this idea that the relationship is still there—it's just transformed into something else—and it's not going to manifest itself in the same way that it did when you were alive, right? You're not going to be able to pick up the phone and like have a conversation with this person. But it doesn't mean you can't reach out to that person, and it doesn't mean that there may be ways through these various types of after-death communication experiences that the deceased person might reach back and contact and give you
1: information and confirmation as well. I think it's fair to say that most mediums are really not trained as grief counselors. I would say that that's
0: probably true. We do provide when in our in our certification process or our you know our yeah uh, we do have them do some very basic sort of introduction to grief. Sort of reading and discussion, um, but yeah, I think that most. Um, I, yeah, I, I hate to talk in broad sweeping terms because I haven't run a study on it. Right, I haven't been like how many mediums are certified grief counselors. Like, I don't know the answer to that question. But um, uh, intuitively, I'm going to say that's probably true. And I think that it's interesting. Although I, there, there are reports of mediums who are grief counselors or have had grief training specifically, and they do try to integrate that into their, into their process. And that's an interesting model. But right now I feel since this is so the research on this is so new that, you know, having mediums that are really good, focusing on the things that they're really good at, and then having trained healthcare professionals that have that understand what a mediumship reading is. And we've done some work, we've we've written some papers on this as well. And we have some instruments for um for healthcare providers um that let them sort of integrate the discussion of afterlife topics into the therapeutic setting. Um, at the moment, that seems like sort of the safest and most powerful combination of things to get people in a productive Healthy again, safe uh, process from um, uh, from grieving to—I don't use the word acceptance, but to to um, uh, forming this continuing bonds relationship.
1: Mark, before we close, I wonder if you have any thoughts about the the future direction of uh, the work that you're taking. What what would be your goal? What would you really like to uh, be able to nail down? Doing more research around this grief piece, I think is critical. So being able to
0: secure the funding and the resources to, um, uh, to answer that question in a really meaningful way, uh, is would be really important, but it's a difficult question to answer and it will take time and money and staff and people. Um, some of the other questions that we get. And we've worked on some of this research and we haven't published, although we've presented on it is one of the questions that we get most often is what's the afterlife like? So is there a way we can answer that question empirically? And we've started down this road with a couple of different uh, kinds of research programs or studies to look at it. And the answer is maybe but it doesn't involve the use of mediums and i'm going to i'm going to leave that as a cliffhanger and um and then the other sorts of things we're really interested in is further developing the sitter bill of rights and um the one of the really big questions is can mediumship actually be taught and who are the best candidates to be taught mediumship and what are the best processes and then again uh, back to this grief piece uh, what do the sitters look like? Who are the people that would benefit most from a mediumship reading? What, what's the ideal sort of sitter physiology, psychology, um, uh, uh, burden, those kinds of things. So there are some really still interesting questions out there to be answered. And, um, again, since we don't have access to the traditional funding that a lot of other research organizations have, um, it's very slow going and, uh, we need, we need financial support um, in order to to make this stuff happen.
1: Well, I can see you have a, a wide range of uh, issues you would like to explore. Yeah, that's it's a
0: fascinating field. There's still a lot of really important questions uh there's also just some interesting questions from a psychology perspective and like from a philosophy of mind and and consciousness perspective and sociologically like what does that mean if we are uh if we exist if our consciousnesses exist in a non-local state if this existed if this connection exists between us like there's there's some really cool stuff in there um and uh Uh, so yeah, so I would encourage anyone that's interested in this work and learning more about it, uh, to visit our website at winbridge.org. You can sign up to our email list. Uh, if you feel so inclined, you can donate. Um, we put out a monthly email newsletter, all of our, the thing that I love about our center and the mission about our center is that all of our material is free. We, um, we, we conduct the research, we publish the research, um, and if the research, some of that research does end up behind a publisher's paywall, but when that happens, we go through and we create um, specific educational materials targeted to various audiences, which all goes onto our website and is all available for free. So um, that's an important part of our mission uh, at the center is being uh, providing these open source materials.
1: Well, as a person who's providing free material as well for our listeners, I'm uh, very sympathetic to uh, your, your goals and your motivations. Mark, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. I know you're doing important work. I want to encourage our viewers to visit your website and learn more about the Windbridge Research Center. And thank you so much for being with me today.
0: Oh, uh, Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the time.
1: And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.